Hey, it's Vadim. Today's episode is all about acoustics. Acoustics is something that we shouldn't skip. We can kind of talk about things in terms of how important are they. Some things are more important, some things are less important, and then some things are easier to fix and some things are more difficult to fix or to learn. Acoustics is one of those things that's both super important and not that difficult to fix or at least improve incrementally. About halfway through this episode, I will jump in and play a quick example of a bass guitar so you can kind of hear what we're talking about. Also, as I sometimes do, I'll remind you to check out my free DIY recording ebook. There's a whole chapter in there on acoustics. Just go to howtorecordyourband.com. Enjoy. You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim Karaz from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Ben Hall from DreamLoud Studio. How's it going, Ben? What's new with you? What's new, man? Do you notice anything that's new? I see you, your headphones are different. Yeah, man. Is, is that it? I've made the plunge. I've made the plunge. I've gone into wireless Bluetooth audio realm. Oh, geez. Tell me. What did you get? What'd you do? <laughs> I finally took the plunge and I bought these Raycon I think they're E55, they're their premium model. Um, they're not too expensive. I got them for just over $100, huh, Okay, which is not too bad for wireless. I mainly got them for like working out and cutting the grass. Because normally when I cut the grass, I put in my like, um, my Shure SE2, 215 like in your and I yeah. have the like uh the wire and it like connects to the dongle that I have to plug into my phone because it doesn't have a typical like headphone like input port and so whenever I turn the wire pulls and it yanks it out of my ear and it's just so freaking <laughs> annoying <laughs> I was I want to play some sad sad music uh in, <laughs> when I edit this while you're while you're describing your your grass cutting experience yeah go on it's just so annoying. And also like when you go to the gym or you're working out, like it's just so annoying to have to have like a wire. Like I had wireless Bluetooth headphones before, but they still were connected by a wire. They were, were, were wirelessly connected to my phone, but they were still connected to each other with a wire. Right, right, So right. these are completely independent and I can't believe how easily they fit and well they... Like they go in and there's no weird wire going behind my neck or under my chin. Mm. It's it's awesome. That's cool. I'm super pumped about them. All right. As you could tell. We have to uh, come up with a new gear sound effect. Every time somebody gets new gear, we can uh, we can play it. I'll have to think about that. We should really should get them to sponsor because that's how I found out about them from listening to other podcasts because they're like on all the other podcasts. Do it. Write to them. Tell them, how, tell them what you told me. We should. <laughs> Tell them how we much should. you love their product. I will, man. I will. All right. So today's episode is kind of our Acoustics 101 episode. We have, in a couple of weeks, we have a very cool guest coming on who is an acoustics wizard. I'm not going to say who it is yet. 
but we're very excited to talk to him. Yes. And we thought in advance of that, we would get some acoustics basics out of the way so that we can really do a deep dive uh, with this guest when he comes on. So we're going to start with something. We're going to cover a little bit of ground that we already covered in episode two when we were kind of talking about the digital recording signal chain. There's going to be a little bit of overlap here with that in the beginning, but then we'll we'll quickly get into some some better acoustic stuff. We're going to start with the basics of sound because this is really the core of why we care about acoustics. Yeah. So sound is a vibration that propagates as a wave through various things. So we think about sound traveling through the air, right? The air is made up of little molecules. They're all kind of bumping into each other and they can all affect each other. And the sound of my voice is resonating these, or actually even a better, an easier example to visualize is like something like a guitar string. When you pluck a guitar string, that string is physically vibrating and it's vibrating the air molecules around it. And then those vibrations travel as waves, just like waves in a pond. They travel and they bounce off of things and eventually they reach your ears and then your ears interpret those vibrations as sound. And we think about, the reason I say we think about sound traveling through through air because that's how we're used to it, but sound actually travels through really anything that's made up of molecules, including water and metal and all kinds of stuff. And I have, um, this is my cool story, Ben. I kind of, (laughs) we were talking offline. I told you I had a cool story about sound traveling and I do, and I'm afraid I built it up too much, but in my, in my previous life, in my, which I'm not going to get into, into the details of what I used to do, but I used to travel around the world doing engineering stuff. And at one point I had to take a trip that required a helicopter ride. So I needed to do this special training called helicopter down training, which basically like simulates a helicopter crash and you have to have oh my all gosh. these things you have to like be prepared to do because helicopter travel is is dangerous. So I went to get my helicopter down training at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, which is a NASA training facility. And they have, I don't know... It's one of the largest indoor, quote unquote, swimming pools in the world, I think. Inside this giant swimming pool, they have a life-size one-to-one replica of the International Space Station. Okay. And wow. the helicopter down training was like in a small corner of the same pool. Because you have to actually, they actually have like a fake helicopter fuselage that they roll over underwater and you have to like know how to get out of a helicopter crash, basically. So the coolest thing though was you know, we get there and we do the classroom portion of the training. The day we we were in the, it was like a multi-day training. And the days we were in the pool, there were actual NASA astronauts in that same pool doing, uh, it's, it's called the neutral buoyancy lab. They're basically training underwater because they can simulate a zero gravitational pull environment. And they have these astronauts training to work on the space station. So I was, first of all, I was changing in the same locker room as astronauts, which is freaking cool. (laughs) (laughs) They were just, you know, just give the old shower locker room nod. Hey, how's it going? And you're just like, hey, yeah, I've just taken the helicopter crash training. And they're like, work on the space station. Yeah, we're going to space. And and actually, (laughs) um, they had the the space suit, like the next generation space suit that they're going to take to Mars. They had it there. And we were like, oh, could we take pictures of this with our cell phones? And the guy was like, yeah, 
It's your tax dollars. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> so we were like That's taking really photos. That's really funny. Anyway, so the way this ties into acoustics is when we were training in the water, underwater, the astronauts are communicating with little uh, speaker systems. And they were way, I mean, I'm talking like probably they were 60, 70 yards away from us underwater. And if you put your head underwater, you could hear clearly as if they were standing right next to you what they were saying through these radio communications. So we don't think about like sound traveling through water because if you tried to speak underwater, you would start drowning. Right. But sound actually travels amazingly clearly through water. And I was, it was amazing. It was like they were standing right next to you talking. It was very cool. Anyway, that's my, that's my awesome story. That's as close as I'll ever come to uh, going to space. (laughs) That's really awesome. I mean, even as you were describing before you went into your story about, you know, what is really happening when we're listening to music and sound waves, it's traveling through air, which we don't even think of as a liquid, but we really are Mm -hmm. just walking around this very um, low density liquid because that's, I mean, that's really the only way we hear anything because the, molecule, the air molecules are bumping into each other. And it's crazy that something that we don't even notice is there is transmitting all of this sound energy. So it did make me think about um, kind of to your example of, you know, something that's more of a, a more dense solid or semi-solid should be able to transmit that sound energy a lot more efficiently, you would think. Yes. Yes, totally. Now, what you shouldn't do is go throw your tube amp into a, the bathtub <laughs> and think you're going to get a better guitar sound. You might, <laughs> yeah. but you'll probably uh, you'll probably kill yourself, too. This okay. reminds me of that... Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, yeah. This, this reminds me of that um, Metalocalypse episode. I think it's the first one. Did you ever watch that show? I did. I love that show, but I don't know what you're... I don't know the reference. Like episode case. one, where they, they record that metal guitar riff in the Marin the Marinus Trench. Ah, that's so long ago. That shows, I know. That shows like 15 years old at this point. But yeah, go. They, so what they, do they do? The idea was it was the most metal guitar tone they possibly could get in the studio that's in the bottom of the deepest <laughs> part of the ocean. But it really, it. Okay. it's scientifically backed up because they probably could promulgate, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just riffing right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Scientifically proven. Yeah, that guy, Brandon Small, is a fantastic guitarist, actually. Yes, he is. Yeah. All right. So we talked about the our, our guitar string example. We pluck it, it vibrates, and so on. So we can describe sound using kind of two main metrics, we'll say. One is the amplitude of the waves. So the amplitude of the sound waves is another way to think about that is how loud is it. And I have we, we measure this using um, kind of the sound pressure level using a, a decibel scale. Uh, there's a couple of different scales, but uh, this is a dBA weighted scale. And just to give you a reference, I have a little scale here. So something like a conversation in a quiet place would be around 65 decibels. A city traffic might be around 80, which is roughly the same as a vacuum cleaner. Like a motorcycle is 100 decibels. A rock concert, 105 decibels. And you kind of go on and on from there. Jet takeoff, 140 decibels. And the reason this is important is because the recommended limit for exposure of longer than an hour is 85 decibels. If you're going to be in an environment where uh, noise level is 85 decibels or higher, that is an indication that you should consider hearing protection. So that's huge because guitar amps easily get above that 85 decibel, uh, and certainly drums as well, above that threshold. So 
even a vacuum cleaner is probably above that threshold. It's right there. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure different vacuum cleaners are different. They, the, on this scale, they have vacuum cleaner right at 80. So yeah, it's close. Absolutely. I actually do. Like I, This is going to sound crazy because I'm really retentive, anal retentive about my hearing, but I will put on like earmuffs, those earmuffs for like yard work when I'm using the blender in the morning. <laughs> and it's because it's loud and I'd rather just protect my hearing. No, it's true though. Okay, so that's one aspect of it is amplitude. The other way to describe the other kind of useful metric we or parameter is frequency content, and that is basically how high or low the pitch is. So human hearing is from 20 hertz, roughly, which is the lowest frequency we can, you almost can't even hear it. You can kind of feel it. Um, and then up to about 20 kilohertz or 20,000 hertz, which... Ben, you mentioned this on a previous episode. Most people, by the time they're adults, can't hear that 20 kilohertz range anymore. I think it's like after um, age 16 or 18, you start losing a lot of those um, super, super highs. I think that even me, like I can only hear above like 15 or 16, like right around that threshold. Because that stuff up there yeah, is, that's all like air and super, super bright yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's. I think that's very common, especially for people who you know play a lot of music and uh, listen to a lot of music. Yeah, but again, it's your hearing is the thing that's scary about it. If you know how how hearing works, I'm not going to get into the details. But hearing loss is irreversible. So you can get something like LASIK eye surgery, maybe to correct your eyesight. As of right now, there is nothing. If you mechanically damage your hearing system, there is no way to get that back. So keep that in mind and uh, really treat it with respect. Um, so we can break up that audible spectrum, that 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz into things that we're more used to seeing on like an equalizer, like a car equalizer or something like that. And this is a little bit fluid of a scale. So you can tell me if you agree or disagree with these. Uh, but roughly from that 20 hertz to let's say about 250 hertz, we can consider bass broadly. Would you agree with that or is that would you not go as high as 250? Cuz I was kind of considering this. I would I would segment them more into like 40 to 80 is sub bass, 80 to I don't know, 80 to like 150 is bass and then 150 to what did you say 240, 220? 2 Yeah, 250 I said, but yeah, 220 is probably better. So you would like, call that what? Like low mids. Low mids. That's where, like where the snare, yeah. snare drum lives and stuff like that. But like, yeah, as so, a general rule, you could call that bass. Yeah, I'm I'm broad. I'm only breaking it up into four categories here. I, I kind of agree with what you said there. But uh, so broadly, you know, we could let's make the cutoff 200 then. So that's easy to remember. 20 hertz to 200 hertz, roughly, is I'm thinking of like a car equalizer, like the EQ on my car, right? If I turn up the bass, I'm basically sh like a shelf EQ down. It's turning up everything probably below 200, I would guess. Right. Fair enough. Then, yeah. From that 200 up to, let's say, as high as maybe, well, let's, let's again, <laughs> for make yeah. it easier to remember, from 200 hertz up to 2 kilohertz, we'll say, is broadly mid-range. I would and agree with that. The, okay, that's the range of the spectrum that human hearing is most sensitive to. Then I did break up the a uh, little bit here. So from 3 to 5, I said, is upper mid-range because that is, Again, we're so sensitive in that range that that, that little uh, band becomes super important. And then everything above 5 kilohertz we can call high-end broadly. And this is important for a number of reasons. Next thing we'll talk about is how sound behaves. 
uh, different frequencies behave differently. So just like a wave in water, you know, sound is a wave we said, so it can, re- it can reflect off of surfaces. Sound waves can pass through each other, which we know is true because if you're in the street, you can hear two different things at once, right? They don't um, necessarily, they, they can interfere with each other, but they can pass through each other as well, just like waves in water. And not all frequencies travel the same way. So low frequencies are good at traveling far distances, whereas high frequencies are generally bad. And the example I used in the um, episode 19 was if you walk by a nightclub, all you hear is subs and bass, right? Because those low frequencies have an easier time escaping the building than the high frequencies. And the other two practical examples here, if you've ever been driving your car and you go through like a long tunnel, your FM radio station might drop out, but an AM radio station would keep going is because those am radio stations have much lower frequencies that are better at traveling through tunnels the other practical example is also the reason why i mentioned this on instagram but this is also the reason why sunsets look red is because as the sun starts to set behind the curvature of the earth it's not audio at all but the those red that red light is uh higher is a lower frequency they're longer wavelengths and so it can travel around the the horizon of the earth and that's why sunsets look red just a little bit of trivia there for you if you uh, ever get that's to cool. go out to bars again but it still is a uh, it still is waves nonetheless even though it's that's visual waves and not audio waves oh yeah totally yeah it's electromagnetic waves yeah for sure All right, so why in the world do we care about this? This may seem like a tangent, but we care because we can use this knowledge of how sound moves to get better recordings. I mean, in episode 19, we talked about how you can create the illusion of distance by using this knowledge, right? And really, we can also use this knowledge to our advantage in a recording situation. And our mystery guest has uh, has this great example, a thought experiment, which we can use here to kick us off in talking about acoustics. So Ben, pretend you and I are, we're, it's a beautiful day and we're walking through a field and we stumble upon- Hand in hand, walking through a field. Yes, hand in hand. And we stumble upon this, your perfect bass rig. It's got your <laughs> perfect Ernie Ball bass and it's got what your, your Mesa Boogie amp. It's all there. And you plug in and you start playing in this open field. That is as pure of a representation of that equipment as we can have in theory, because the sound is leaving that amp. It has no surfaces to bounce off of. It's just, we're hearing the the pure sound of that rig. So that's kind of our gold standard, right? We want to try to replicate that as much as we can. And of course we can never replicate that because in reality, we're in an enclosed space. There's walls, there's a ceiling and sound is going to be bouncing around. But that's our gold standard is we want to minimize the effect of any reflections and try to get as close to the sound that's coming out of the equipment as we can. And again, this is important for a number of reasons, but one is that we're recording music that will be listened to <laughs> on lots of different environments, right? Like mm-hmm. your mom's car and your mom's radio in her kitchen and your mom's cell phone when she's at her friend's house, right? <laughs> All the places <laughs> your song is going to get played. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. So, um, so we want the music we make to translate across these different systems. And in order to do that, we need to have an honest room, both for recording and for listening back. So the the ways that the ways our room lies to us is again, using our example here, pretend we have that same bass rig in a room. Well, when we play that note, 
the sound leaving the amp reaches our ears, sure, the same way as it does in the field, but the sound also bounces off the nearest wall. And then that reflection reaches our ear a couple of milliseconds later. And those little delays can create uh, bits of positive and negative reinforcement in those waves. So what that means is if you think about like your fancy or uh, your wife's fancy noise-canceling headphones, what those headphones are doing are they're analyzing kind of the ambient noise and then they're flipping the phase. Yeah. And that's creating a perfect cancellation of that ambient noise. Well, in our example with the bass guitar, we're not going to get perfect cancellation, but what we're going to get is some frequencies unnaturally boosted. It's positive, like two waves basically kind of building each other up. One is standing on the other's shoulders and other frequencies may disappear as those waves, you have a kind of a peak of one wave corresponding with a crest or a a trough of another wave. Those are going to cancel out. And so you're going to get, it's going to sound like there's holes in the frequency spectrum. And this is bad. It's bad for recording and it's bad for listening back. And it's bad for listening back because you're going to say, oh, I'm missing some mids here. And you're going to crank the mids on your amp, right? When really you have an acoustics problem. And it's bad for recording because the microphone in this example is like your ear. So whatever you're hearing, those issues you're hearing, the microphone's going to hear as well. So I want to demonstrate this effect and show you what this looks like. So pretend you're standing in a room and the bass cabinet is about six feet from your head. So sound leaving the bass cabinet will have to travel six feet to get to your ears. That sound will also travel to the back wall. Let's say that back wall, just for the example, is 10 feet away. And then it bounces off the back wall and travels another five feet to get to your head. So in other words, you got sound directly from the cabinet that's traveling six feet to get to your ears. And then the first reflection off the back wall is traveling 15 feet. So it has to travel nine feet farther. So we can figure out what that means. Sound travels, we know, at 1,125 feet per second, roughly. And no, I don't know that. I had to uh, <laughs> I had to look it up. But anyway, we can use that to figure out that, okay, sound that travels 9 feet farther, it's going to take that sound about 8 milliseconds longer to get to your ears. That's 0.008 seconds. So in other words, again, you got sound leaving the bass cabinet that's going to reach your ears and then 0.008 seconds later the first reflection off the back wall is going to reach your ears and we can simulate this using a real example so i'm going to play a bass line here this is the sound that's coming off of the amp in our example Now I'm going to duplicate that track in my DAW. And so I'll have two identical versions of it. But the second version I'm going to delay by eight milliseconds, which is the, the, uh, the amount of time we identified in our example. So I'm going to start by playing uh, just the original version. And then I'm going to introduce this eight millisecond delay onto the second instance and you you can uh, you'll be able to hear this effect
especially at the end there, you could hear that there's frequencies that are missing, specifically some of those meaty bass frequencies in the 100 hertz range where we really kind of identify as being the bass guitar range. They seem to almost disappear. And there's also some weird, almost like phasey stuff going on that we can't quite put our ears on in the in the mids, in the upper mids, especially you could hear it at the end there. And this is an effect called comb filtering. If you were to look at this visually on a frequency analyzer, you would see that the original bass signal has some frequency distribution. It has some, some frequency content. If we were to look at it combined with the delayed version, you would see these kind of spiky holes in the frequency band. So you see these kind of sharp notches down for frequency bands that are being canceled out effectively by being combined with the uh, delayed waveform. Now, this is, of course, an artificial example and a very extreme example because in reality, you would not only have the first reflection off the back wall, you would also have reflections off of all of the other surfaces. And in general, sound is bouncing all around the room. So some of those other reflections would kind of make up some of these deficits that we're hearing here. But very commonly, you will still get a buildup in a certain frequency range. It just maybe won't be as spiky as in this perfect example, but you'll still get a buildup of some frequencies and kind of a dip in other frequencies uh, that will basically lie to you about what's coming out of that amplifier. So listen to it one more time here. The other thing we can do is play around a little bit with this delay. So as we change the delay, we're basically changing the size of the room in a sense. We're changing how far that uh, that um, sound has to go to get to a reflective surface. And inevitably, all of these will sound kind of bad, but they'll sound different. You'll hear kind of different frequencies are disappearing as we start playing with this delay. So let me do that. That's 18 milliseconds. That's 15 milliseconds. That's an interesting one because you could hear that some notes disappeared while other notes seem to be there, which is, again, typical of this effect. And you've probably experienced this if you've seen or uh, heard bass notes kind of suddenly jump out and seem way too loud because there's some kind of room resonance at that specific frequency. Let me do a couple more here. That's five milliseconds. That's 18 milliseconds. The other thing to note is that once we get above, ooh, it's tough to say exactly, but maybe 25 milliseconds or so, we stop hearing the sound as kind of a single sound that sounds funny, and we can actually start distinguishing that there's two sounds there. So that's kind of the roughly the threshold at which our brains can start interpreting the delay as actually being a almost like a slap delay effect. And you've probably experienced this in real life if you've ever 
clapped your hands or snapped your fingers in like a cave or a very large room where you hear the original snap, but then you can hear the um, the delayed echoes as well. So let me start playing with that a little bit just so you can hear what it sounds like. So I'm going to start at 30 milliseconds and move my way up. That's 41. 51. 61. 74. 80 milliseconds. I think the two biggest questions are, especially for our listeners that are in their own home recording environments, whether you want to record yourself or your band, the biggest first question you need to answer or that you probably have is, how important is this that I solve? You know, how big of a deal is this? Can I, I think even one of our um, community members was just asking, you know, is acoustic treatment that big of a deal with all this digital stuff that we have nowadays? Mm. Um, so. You know, if it is a problem, how big of a problem is it? How much resources, time, energy, money do I need to put forward to solving the problem? Um, and I think there's a couple different ways of going about it. I'm going to represent two main different, I mean, there's more than just two, but there's two main different ways of kind of dealing with this. And I think we're going to focus more on the second one. But the first one is uh, you just listen and record and play a lot of music in the same places and get used to the way that your environment sounds. I kind of have a little bit of that going on in my own room because even as you're talking about uh, the example of the bass amp that's being played in the room and you're getting that artificial boosting and cutting of frequencies because of all the bouncing around, um, in my room in particular, I know that there is a problem probably right around 100 hertz where mm. there's some cancellation happening and unfortunately that's all that's really where the bass guitar likes to sit a lot of the times too right. in music so uh if i'm just going off of what i hear in my studio a lot of times i'll think to myself i can't really hear the bass guitar i need to turn it up louder but because i've worked in my room for so long I just know that that's the way that my room sounds. So either I'll reference it on, I'll reference it on headphones, which kind of, and we could talk about this later. That that kind of eliminates the room factor a little bit, um, or I'll just look at my analyzers and see where the bass is hitting, and I'll just know that okay, even though it doesn't sound like there's a lot of bass, there actually is a lot of bass there. So the one way of dealing with it is just kind of knowing. Uh, the limitations of your environment. But the second way, and I recommend a combined approach of both of these, but the second approach is actually fixing the problems and doing what you can with acoustic treatment to solve some of those problems. Yeah, absolutely. I like what you said there a lot. Uh, there are some basic, I, I would say, preemptive solutions that you're going to want to have in just about any room. And actually, our guest is going to, to talk about that a lot. So I don't want to get too much into that uh, in this episode. But even with those minimal 
uh, those minimal preemptive strikes, so to speak, knowing your room is important. And there's a couple of ways to do that. One way is, and actually a lot of, uh, there's a lot of well-known mix engineers that do this, where they will bring music they know really well with them if they work in somebody else's studio. And the first thing they do is they put in those records that they know really well and listen to what they hear because that's mm-hmm. giving they're basically calibrating their response to that room which they may have never worked in before so you can take records that you've loved maybe listening to in your car let's say and listen to them in your room kind of with a critical ear and just see is you know is there too much bass is there uh, not enough bass and so on that's one way to know your room another way is to make some music in your room and then listen to it in a lot of other environments like your car headphones, your cell phone, little Bluetooth speaker, whatever you can think of, and kind of average the response, average your notes from all of those listening environments. And you may come up with something like that as well. It's like, whoa, I mix my my bass way too loud. Um, and then that'll give you yeah. kind of a, a frame of reference as well. So as far as like what we can do preemptively, you kind of started hinting at it. And I like, I'm going to add in my notes here is to listen with references because that is a great technique that costs you literally nothing and <laughs> you don't yeah. have to build anything or buy anything that's the that's one of the biggest things that you you can do and i'll do that i don't do this very often but sometimes i'll do live mixing i always do that i always bring a playlist with me on my phone that i can plug into the mm. system and i'm that's exactly what i'm doing and what they call that in uh, in the industry is tuning the room you're tuning the sound system mm. And what essentially that means is you put on, and a lot of times you'll have a variety of different mixes. Maybe you'll have like uh, some slamming electronic music with a lot of low end bass. So you'll put on that song and that's where you can really focus in on the low end. All right, is the low end really flabby or is it tight and, and pleasant? Uh, and then you might put on some jazz, some something more easy, easy listening that has a lot more upper mid. So like... Like Vadim talked about in the beginning of the episode, we're separating um, the sound that we listen to into these specific frequency bands. And that's important because each of them act a little bit differently and each style of music maybe has a heavier emphasis on different um, a different frequency region. So mm. it's just, and the same thing with whenever you're using reference mixes, whether that's for... Um, your own room and getting used to like what you're going to be recording in uh, as a reference, or if you're doing something in a room you're not familiar with, it's just important to have a nice diverse set of uh, things that you're listening to just so that you're not overly influenced by a specific genre or style. Cause I could totally see if you're only listening to, you know, your hip hop mixes and there's nothing wrong with that. If, but that, if that's all you're listening to and it's got, really over the top accentuated low end or bass in it then you might not be you might actually uh turn the sub bass down too much in your room or think that right it might be overpowering but it could really just be the style of the music so there's a few different factors at play yeah absolutely and if you're wondering i mean low end tends to be the the harder thing to nail down here because again because of the way those wavelengths are those longer wavelengths, when you have a problem in the low end, something like 100 hertz disappearing is, is a pretty broad 
frequency uh, kind of band, I would say. If you, you if you have a big bass problem, you will have like way too much bass or way too little bass is what you'll think you'll have. Whereas in the higher frequencies, when you have an acoustic problem, something like comb filtering, it's typically almost a very sharp notch that'll be accentuated or missing. I remember I was actually mixing a song. It was like a pop electronic song and I was referencing it in my car and there was this one note on the synth that was painfully loud. And that was just a resonance in my car acoustic system at that one very specific frequency and I couldn't replicate it on any other listening systems. So from that day on, I was like, huh, okay, well, I forget what it was now. It was like six kilohertz or something like that. I was like, okay, well, I know now if that jumps out at me in my car, it's not because my mix screwed up. It could just be um, my car's acoustic system. So yeah. Okay, so as far as what we can do, uh, we have a couple of different things other than listening critically. We can, in general, our rooms have hard surfaces. You know, we have drywall, we have wood, we have tile. These are all, all these hard surfaces reflect sound very efficiently, which is a problem for us. So we have a couple of different things we can use. We can use absorb, we can basically have absorption, which will, it's exactly what it sounds like. It kind of absorbs that, that pressure or that energy, that acoustic energy and keeps it from reflecting. Or you can have diffusion or diffusers, which will kind of scatter. It's kind of a oddly shaped geometry or sometimes even just like a, you know, like a half cylinder or something like that, which will scatter the sound into different directions and keep it from bouncing cleanly. You can think of this as like you have a mirror, which is a good reflecting device versus, you know, uh, a funhouse mirror, which <laughs> or something like that, which distorts the image a little bit and keeps those uh, reflections from be being as problematic. Right. So a a good treatment plan. We're going to, in most cases, focus on absorbers, on absorption in a small studio environment. And again, we're going to get a lot more into this in our kind of acoustics two hundred one episode. We talked a little bit about in the recording great vocals every time episode uh, about some some of some uh, really important treatment strategies which we'll just touch on here and the big one is again especially for vocals is treating first reflection points which mm. are kind of that f that first um, it's that mirror trick right where you slide the mirror across the wall and where you can um, see the microphone if you're the vocalist if you can see the microphone in the mirror that's your first reflection point so in general, that's a good idea for recording vocals. For guitar amps, we're trying to keep things as dry as we can. So a great trick there is if you can't treat your your whole room, um, a great trick is to take like a moving blanket or a thick blanket and actually just when you set your mic up, just throw a thick blanket over the whole thing to keep those amp sounds from escaping into the room and being able to bounce around mm -hmm. and wreak havoc. So you're trying to kind of stop them at the source which is also the theory behind those uh, those little vocal reflectors, Ben. I think you have one of those, right? The little vocal yeah. gobos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, and you said you had some. You you said you have really great results with that. Oh, they're great. They work awesome. Yeah, so that's the same similar concept. Where so basically, one concept is like in my studio, I have a bunch of panels hanging around the walls, and there's enough of them that the space sounds pretty pretty dry. But the other option is you just kind of stop the sound as close to the source as you can, keep yeah. it from getting out into the room. And that's another another option as well. 
in our um, Acoustics 201 episode, we'll talk a lot about minimal treatments and what you need to do. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about that before we move on to measuring, measurement, uh, room measurement techniques? You covered things really well, Vadim, about kind of the first steps to take with treatment and you want to tackle your first reflection points at first. But I will say with a caveat, when it comes to acoustic treatment, money really makes a difference. You know, you get what you pay for. And part of the reason why I was explaining this to my intern in my studio a little bit, because I was warning her, don't go out and buy like those really cheap acoustic, like the foam absorbers that just like get pinned up on the wall that you're like, oh, I could just cover my, I could just pepper my wall with these. And part of the reason why that doesn't work is, you know, if you go back to my example at the beginning, lower frequencies, well, like Vadim said, lower frequencies tend to be the more problem region. And simultaneously, lower frequencies tend to have the most energy. So if you think of how an acoustic absorber works, it really is turning uh, velocity and vibrational energy into heat energy by capturing the by capturing the movement of the sound wave. So right. to capture a powerful, large, low-frequency wave, you need a lot of material to do that. In fact, it's um, a direct correlation between the size of the panel and the energy, a.k.a. the, the lowness of the frequency that you can actually absorb. Let's say that you have acoustic panels in your room. This is just a hypothetical. Let's say you have acoustic panels in your room that go down to 100 hertz, but you have a problem with 50 hertz and you want to capture that 50 hertz wave. You're going to need, I think it's four times the amount of material because it's actually exponential. But regardless of the actual number, you're going to need a lot more material to be able to capture that same amount of wave, which also equals to you're going to need that amount more of money to put into your acoustic treatment <laughs> to to be able to make a difference. So most things with home recording, I like to take the approach of don't worry too much about spending a lot of money on gear. Just start working with what you have. But when it comes to acoustic treatment, you really don't want to skimp whenever it comes to to that area. And it it can be pretty pricey. I think that in my mixing room that I have right now, I've got, I've got six panels around me all capturing my first reflection points and one behind me. So a total of seven panels and I've spent probably close to $1,000 on them. It's not a cheap thing, but it definitely makes a difference. So unless you're willing to put some decent amount of money into it, I would almost say it would be better to save your money and maybe go a little bit of the other route of learning what your room sounds like or using headphones to reference that maybe take the room equation out of it. That's, yeah, that's true. And also, I mean, a recording environment is not going to be as critical as maybe, a, you know, a critical listening mixing environment. But I'm kind of the opposite case where I have, I do have some panels I purchased, but I got one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, I got six and then I have two big bass traps, which I, I all of these I built myself and I, it probably cost oh, me nice. less than, less than 200 bucks, but it, it took me like, like four months or something <laughs> because <laughs> I was, I was doing it on weekends 
I could only do it when the weather was nice because it's working with fiberglass and you have to do it. Anyway, what I'll do is I do have a really good video that I used to, to make the panels in MySpace. Uh, you can save a ton of money, but you do have to be willing to put in the time. They're not that difficult to build. Let's say a couple other things about this too, because I don't want to just trash the cheap foam panels and not tell people why they're not good. I mean, essentially the reason why those $25 like little squares on Amazon that you could find, the reason why those aren't good is because basically there's no material there. It's not really going to do anything for you. And it's not only is there not enough material, but it's not the right kind of material. Uh, you specifically need high density fiberglass type material. That's the stuff that works best insulation style material is what works best for absorbing acoustic waves. So I remember when I first got into this and, you know, I'm just going to speak on layman's terms because I know a lot of people listening to this podcast and probably never even thought about this before, but don't be fooled into thinking that you can just grab like egg crates and, and paste them up on your wall and it's going to make a difference because this stuff is a little bit more complicated than just the shape of the material or what it feels like. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said. I, I will say that even the egg crate stuff, so it, it basically is a question of which frequencies is the material effective for. High frequencies, that foam does work reasonably well. So if you're in like, if you even if you're recording just vocals or something like that, I would say even the cheap foam is better than nothing. But once you get below like, a thousand hertz, yeah, that foam is not going to do anything for you. I think that's well said. I think that's a better way of covering things too. It's so it's not like that cheap foam doesn't work, but a lot of times the problem in rooms, like if you if you notice a problem, like if you're audibly hearing a problem, most of the time it's mid range or low frequency, right. and that requires Absolutely. a little bit more care to to tackle. Exactly. You're not really going to notice a lot of that comb filtering stuff unless it's something very specific. So this, this is a nice segue into the last bit I have here in my notes, which is, you know, ways that we can measure, quote unquote, or quantify the problems or qualify the problems in our room. And I actually did break that down into these two categories. The first is just qualitatively uh, measuring our room, which is some of the things you've talked about with tuning the room, right? Uh, you can just walk around and listen. Um to different to, to music that you're familiar with. Another thing you could do is you can play just a sign sweep, which is basically a, a an elevating tone that starts, you know, it starts at the bottom of the audible frequency spectrum and sweeps all the way up. And even there, you might just you might not be able to pinpoint a frequency, but you'll hear that some frequencies sound way too loud for some reason, and some frequencies sound way too quiet. And that is an indication that you have some room mode issues. Yeah. You can also compare your room sound to the headphone sound. I mean, headphones have their own colorations, but in general, in an untreated room, your headphones are going to be a little more honest than the room. So you can kind of compare those two things. What else can you think of for qualitatively measuring your room? Just like understanding that there may be a problem. What other techniques would you use? One of the things I'll do is I'll walk around my room and just kind of see how the sound changes as I move through the room. Yep. Yeah, because sometimes you can, uh, even if you have a problem, sometimes you can sit situate your listening environment or where you're actually recording the part to, to your advantage in a place, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, another another important note here, and as a cool tip, is as we said, high frequencies because they are worse at traveling through space. They tend to be more directional. So like, you can pinpoint where a high frequency is coming from much more easily than you can pinpoint where a low frequency is coming from, and. This is why you may notice like in a home theater system, for example, a subwoofer may not be perfectly centered in the stereo field and it doesn't matter because we have a hard time determining the directionality of low frequency waves. And this is a really cool tip that I heard a couple of years ago for placing a subwoofer, whether in your home stereo system or in your studio, is you place the subwoofer itself into the chair, into the listening location and then you walk around the room and find the place where the bass response is most even. And then you place the subwoofer there in that location, right? Which it's a nice kind of hack to, to place a subwoofer without doing any uh, detailed measurement. I like that idea. I think there's one thing to keep in mind though too, because you can technically put the subwoofer anywhere in the room. But I have heard people talk about if you have the subwoofer a lot closer or farther away than the monitors are, you can get this weird separation where um, a delay effect where the sub-bass frequencies right. are reaching your ear either before or after Good point. the response from the speaker. So that's something to keep in mind too. Yeah, yeah, good point. Another option if, if you want to get more high-tech is to actually quantitatively measure your room. And this is something we'll talk more about in the next episode as well. It's not going to be the very next episode, but it's going to be the episode we do. It's probably going to be sometime in June. And this is to actually use a piece of software. And a, a really powerful free one is called Room EQ Wizard. Totally free. And it the, the capabilities of the software really blow my mind. I am, you know, I only know how to scratch the surface in the software. But the basic concept is this. You, you take a, a microphone that you set up in your listening position or it can be in your playing position or wherever position you're going to be in yourself. And the software plays some sign sweeps and it knows what it's sending out of your speakers. Mm -hmm. And then it's analyzing that versus what the microphone is capturing. And based on that, it can tell you, it can show you a graph an actual frequency graph that'll show you, hey, you got some accentuation in these frequency range, you got some loss in this frequency range. That's one of the things it does. The other thing it'll do is, is measure kind of a decay time. So another problem we commonly have in rooms is that like a bass frequency might be bouncing around the room for a little bit and it takes a while for it to decay. This makes a muddy mess out of everything. If you've ever thought like, I, I can hear the bass, I can hear there's a bass guitar there, but I can't pick out the individual notes that are being played, you may have an issue with decay times that are too long and starting to get uh, muddy. So this software will also show you a graph of that. And based on that uh, analysis, you can first of all see visually where your problems are, which is helpful. But you can also oftentimes send that to like a professional acoustics company or even just use it yourself to identify a treatment plan for your space. Yeah, I'm just looking at my graphs that I took five years ago with using Rumi Q Wizard, and it looks like I have a huge peak at 50 hertz, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had the opposite. I had a roll-off uh, around 50 hertz before I, um, before I made some of the changes. The other thing I found, which, was, which blew my mind, 
I was playing around with this. I have little um, desktop racks on my desk for some analog gear. And my monitors used to be a little farther back. And what I found was I was getting these crazy reflections off of those racks. So I was actually Hmm. playing around. I would measure my room and then I would, you know, move my monitors a couple inches closer, measure again. It's like, oh, it's getting better. And I ended up moving my monitors all the way to the front edge of my of my rack. So my stereo field is a little narrower, but it cleaned up my frequency spectrum a lot um, and uh, made it uh, made it a lot easier for me to hear some of those things in the upper mids. Yeah. So can you describe what the difference was before and after? So what did it sound like when it was bad? So I had an issue, actually it wasn't even upper mids. If I remember correctly, it was around 500 or 600 hertz. I had a dip and this was a problem I was having in my mixes. It wasn't a big dip, but I would I would have too much mid-range in my mixes. And I think those, my understanding from what the little reading I did was a lot of times when you have issues in that mid-frequency range, it's from reflections off of the desk. But what was crazy hmm. was I tried different things just to, just to mess around. Like I put acoustic panels on my desk just to see if that would make a difference. And really, the only thing that made a difference was moving those monitors and um, and getting rid of, I think, again, I think that my suspicion is the reflections were coming off of the top of my desktop racks. So the, the point here is, this is getting a little into the weeds, but the point is that a you can bit. play around with this. Um, if you're actually taking the time to measure with a software, you can play around with moving your desk, moving your speakers, moving yourself, and you'll find that some things are going to give you better results than others. Well said, Vadim. That's all I got, man. Good episode. I I hope that you know maybe this isn't maybe this isn't necessarily for everybody, or maybe you're listening to this and you're like, this is way more in depth than I've ever thought about <laughs> this topic before. But um, I would say just glean and take what you can from what we've talked about. And maybe this is something you put in your back pocket and think, you know, I'm not quite ready to tackle this yet, but once I am, I'm going to come back and listen to this episode and, and grab the things that are important to me. Cause I mean, that's kind of the way that I went about figuring out acoustics for myself because I didn't go to school for this. Um, so I had to learn things kind of the hard way. And a lot of it was kind of oh my goodness, researching and going over so many forums on the internet and trying to figure out, well, what's actually important, what's going to work for me and what's just a bunch of people basically, you know, just trying to show off their knowledge to one another. Like I want practical solutions. So hopefully we've demystified a lot of this stuff for you guys. So you can start making some better recordings in your spaces and, uh, you know, empowered you to make some change where you can get better recordings today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I know this this is more like a theoretical episode, but our again, we're trying to prep ourselves for our guest who is absolutely brilliant when it comes to acoustics. And he's really going to focus on, okay, what practically, what can you actually do in your room? What works and what doesn't for treatment? So we're really excited about that. Heck yeah, man. So I guess we'll wrap it up. And um, yeah, like we always say, check yourselves before you wreck yourselves. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. 
So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.